The following audio is from Grace City Church in San Diego, California. More information about Grace City Church is available at gracecitysd.com. Morning, church. All right. I have a question. What is this? Bible. What else is it known as? The Word of God. Simon Peter said to Jesus, words of eternal life. So with that said, this is life. This is our life. If you don't have a Bible, oh gosh, please get one. If you don't have the money for one, out there at Connections Table, free. Read it, mark it, fold pages, <laughs> stick stuff in it. Get a new one when that one's covered and torn and pages are coming out. But please, get a Bible and read it. Judges 2, 6 through 11. When Joshua, when Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his own inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gosh. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Let's pray. Lord, we have just acknowledged that this is your your living word. These are the words of eternal life. These are what tell us how we then shall live. So we ask you, Lord, to give us understanding of your word this morning. Give us eyes that can see. Give us ears that can hear. Give us hearts that can understand. We ask you to help us to not harden our hearts against your word this morning but help us to be obedient to those things that you reveal to us, Lord. We ask you to speak boldly to our hearts through the words that Randall has prepared today, Lord. We ask you for anointing. We ask you for unction. We ask you for the power of the Holy Spirit upon him and upon us that we might receive the words that you have spoken to us. In Jesus' name. All right. We're good. Uh, one of the leaders here and. um Really thankful for you being here this morning. Uh, if you're just joining us, um, over the past month has been a whirlwind for our church. Uh, we have jumped into uh, this uh, campaign opportunity that we have to have a permanent uh, physical space as a church. Um, and it's been ex an exciting time. There's a lot that's happening. Um, by the grace of God, we've raised almost a million dollars. And so we praise God for that. And that's awesome. And so today you probably wondered, okay, what's the update of what's going on? And here's the update. Come next week. Uh, that's the update. That's the update. Uh, and, and, and for me, uh, one of the things that I want to encourage us with is this. Um, it is a good thing to wait on the Lord. I was just reading in uh, Psalm 27 this week. I was reading through it. I just kept saying, wait on the Lord, wait on the Lord, wait on the Lord. And one of the things that we just can't stand is waiting, right? Like we just can't stand it. And it's a good thing for us. It's a good thing to wait. And so um, I am thankful to just be in this with you. And uh, just as a church family, uh, we're going to continue in our series right now, just talking through uh, what, what does it look like for God to make all things new? That's our series right now. We've been in a vision series. It's a six-week-long series, Make All Things New. It's in, and what this is is a prayer. Because as we look around, we see uh, so many struggles around us, but not only outside of us, but inside of us, right? And so this prayer of God, make things new in my life. Uh, for us, our church, the vision of our church is uh, to be a church for our city that seeks new life in who? Jesus, new life in Jesus, right? And so we believe that Jesus offers us this new life. We don't have to live stuck anymore in the, the old life, but God's given us newness. 
And so what does that look like to really live that out? Our text today is Judges 2, 6 through 11. And the message that we see here is encouraging the next generation. Encouraging the next generation. This morning as we start, I want you to think for a moment, uh, who has been a genuine example of faith in your life? Who has been a genuine example of faith in your life? As I think about that question, somebody that sticks out to me more than anyone else is my grandmother, Grace Sharoma. Now, Grace is 91 years young. Um, This is Grandma Grace. Last year, we had her 90th birthday party. All of the family came together. Uh, She uh, lives in uh, Kaneohe, Hawaii, and uh, that's where my family lineage is. You know, there's my mom's side. This is my mom's mom, and she is someone who I look to as uh, a woman of faith a lineage of, of faith that she has passed along uh, to us. And, and so I remember mornings waking up, uh, going to my grandmother's room and, and seeing her right next to her bed on her knees, and she was praying. I'd say, Grandma, what are you doing? Just as a little kid, I said, Grandma, what are you doing? She's like, I'm praying. I'm talking to God, and I'm praying for you. I'm praying that you would know who Jesus is. And seeing her, her life, who she is, uh, she's always been somebody who just radiates the love of God. Now, she has not had an easy life. But the consistency that I saw in her, even as we had my grandfather's funeral just a few years ago, who for most of his life was not a Christian, was not a believer, but received Christ on his deathbed. To see her consistency of love for Jesus, it's something that affected me deeply. 2 Timothy 1.5 says this, I am reminded of your sincere faith. Talking to Timothy, Paul talking to Timothy, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. Now, what we see here is this lineage that Paul is pointing back to in the life of Timothy and saying, I I know your grandmother Lois, I know your mother Eunice. They were genuine, they have a sincere faith in God. And it's the same faith that I see in you. Now, we don't know much about Timothy's life and his growing up. And and we don't know much about where his dad is or where his grandfather was. But what I know right now is that we live in a generation that there is a fatherless pandemic. It's an epidemic. there, There is an epidemic of fatherless youth. And what we need is a generation that raises up with sincere and genuine faith. Today, I want to take a moment to call up some of the men here and say, your kids, if you have kids or your spouse, need to see a man with a sincere and genuine faith. We all need examples of sincere faith to show us that God is real, that God is real. And so as we talk about, Lord, make all things new, what does it look like for God to move in this generation and some of the gaps that we see, the, the, the epidemics that are happening in our culture? What does it look like when God moves in a generation? What I believe is there's transformation. See, to be a church for a city that seeks new life in Jesus, 
What's happened many times in previous generations is that churches start to become more about themselves than about others. We start to become more inward than outward. And that's a problem. And so one of the reasons we have for our church as a vision is to be a church for our city. We're not a church for ourselves, but we're a church for others. But really what holds this all together is that seeking new life in Jesus. Seeking new life in Jesus. See, we believe that Jesus has the transformational power to transform communities, households, generations. I've shared this before, but I want to re- repeat this. A, a Barna study released in February 1st, 2023, revealed that 77% of Generation Z teens are motivated to learn about Jesus Christ in their lifetime. What happens many times is the, the, the current generation looks at the next generation, and we start judging them, and we start having all these assumptions about them. And, we, and what happens is we miss That there's a generation that's seeking to know who Jesus is. 77%. That, that is an astounding statistic. But do you know what they're looking for? They're looking for sincere faith. Genuine faith. Real faith. We live in a critical moment in our culture, in our nation. I was reading a story, happened a couple months ago in our community. It's a story about a young boy, 14 years old, who was excited to go to school this upcoming school year. After one week in school, there was a social media post. He had come out and shared that he's gay. He was beaten up, made fun of. A social media post was put out there, and a week later, he's dead. He took his own life. There's a generation right now that's struggling with sexuality. They're struggling with their identity. They're struggling with fear of, am I, is there any worth that I have? Is it, does it matter that I actually exist? And sometimes people feel like their only option is to end it all. And I want to tell you, if you are struggling with anything, this is a safe place to learn about who God is, to wrestle and say, hey, I, I don't understand who I am and why I'm here, and I want you to meet the real Jesus. My prayer is that you meet the real Jesus. That happened in this community. See, for many times what we see is this distant post or stories that are happening. And we need the love and life and grace and truth of Jesus to move in. There's a generation that's asking, is this real? Is this real? Ryan Burge, who's a sociologist at Eastern Illinois University, says this, for a long time the church declined and no one really cared. And now people are seeing the decline and saying, wow, this is really becoming a problem now. We have reached an inflection point. Do you know what's waking up some churches, sadly, is that the budget isn't being met. Seats aren't being filled like they used to. Do we see that there was a problem before we thought there was a problem? 
What does it look like to be a genuine Christian who follows Jesus? What does it look like for God to make all things new? Throughout church history, we've seen times of renewal and revival. Before uh, author and pastor Timothy Keller passed away this year, he wrote a series of articles on the need for revival. One in the Atlantic entitled, American Christianity is Due for a Revival. And he reminds us that the church does not go from strength to strength. That's what we think, right? Strength to strength. The best is yet to come. That's not the, 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 the church. Actually, he says the church does not go from strength to strength, but its, its founder, like its founder, goes from death to resurrection. Death to resurrection. We need a resurrected church that shows us what the life of Jesus really looks like. See, what happens during times of revival? Well, sleepy Christians start to wake up. No longer is coming to church just a routine, but it's this fire reality in your heart where you say, this is real, this is true. There's this strong desire to know who God is. What happens is there's, there's people who have grown up in the church, nominal Christians, and they're converted. They're, they're like, I've been going to church my whole life, and I don't even think I was a Christian. The grace of God meets them in a, in a tangible and real way. There's this conviction of sin, a reality of God, a recovery of, of the truth of the gospel. You say, wow, I, didn't, I thought that you just go to church and you just kind of clean your life up. No. It's that God meets us right where we're at in our sin, in our spiritual deadness, and invites us into the life that only Jesus can offer through the power of the cross. We're Christians because of what Jesus has done, not because of anything that we've done. We are saved by faith, not by works. And a genuine faith develops in our lives. And what also happens is that people who are very adamantly opposed to Christianity start to come to faith. And they say, wow, I, I never thought I would be a Christian. Never thought that I would actually have faith in Jesus Christ. People that were far from God start to come near to God. See, why do we need this? Well, there is the spiritual reality that we go from death to life, that we have eternity with God, but also new life in him right now, resurrected power. But even studies have showed, sociologist Robert uh, Bella wrote this book called Habits of the Heart. And in this book, he talks about the social history of the United States. And he said that the United States has become the most individualistic culture in the world. American culture elevates self-interest above family, community, nation. It's very different from many other cultures. And he talked about this, and this book is, is older. It's almost like 40 years old, but it, 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 it really hits the, the nail on the head when it talks about our culture today. He said, you know, during time, like, uh, says that, Religion, like, counterbalanced a lot of the individualism that was happening in our culture. That the self-centeredness uh, was denounced so that we could live out this calling to love our neighbors and, and to be in the community. Talked about how the church had, had uh, said, you know, we need to, to give and be charitable and have compassion for the needs of others we talked about just the, the God's view of, of sexuality and what marriage is and encouraged uh, spouses to be faithful. Bella wrote that American individualism now largely uh, has been freed up because we don't have any, any type of uh, counterbalance. And so what that's done is it's created social fragmentation, economic inequality, family breakdown, 
many other dysfunctions has started to be created. And when you look around, you say, man, it feels very fragmented. Everything just seems so polarizing. We talk about culture wars all the time. People are fighting. There's a difference, right? Like there's, we live in a, in a culture today that has xenophobia, fear of people. What the Bible calls us to is different. It's philoxenia. It's love of people. But we live in a culture that, and so instead of what, what, ha, what we have of creating real friendships and relationships, we've, resulted, we, we've resorted to having just allies. We don't have friends. We have allies. And if you agree with me, then you're my ally. If you don't, then you're out. And we have this fear of people. But God has called us to have this philoxenia that's a love for people that's unnatural within ourselves. Where does that love come from? It comes from above. It comes from God. And so today we're looking at this passage from Judges 2, 6 through 11. And the question is, can, can, can revival happen in this generation? Can, can God fill the gaps for this generation as we read about the previous generation here? I pray for it. Describing what's happening in Judges, Barry Webb says this. He says, it took only one generation for the memory of the great things God had done for Israel under Joshua to grow dim and with it, knowledge of God himself. One generation. Timothy Keller uh, sets us up. He says, chapters 2, 6 through, uh, six through 3, 6, is a second introduction to the book of Judges, which is best read parallel to uh, 1 and 2. But it is not only an introduction, it is a summary of the whole book. In it, the narrator lays out the cycle of Israelite spiritual experience, which we will see repeated through the book. And while 2, 4 through 5, offered some hope for Israel's future, as the half-hearted people wept for their disobedience and offered sacrifices to God, the second introduction, by taking us further in, in time, ends on a much more depressing note about the spiritual state of God's people. See, what we looked at last week is in Judges 2, the people have an experience with the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. And what happens is the people hear from Jesus, and it says that they lifted up their voices and wept. They called the name, or they called that name of the place Bochum, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. And it looks like everything is all good, right? Okay, they got it. But what happened was this, that instead of really being convicted to the heart, they were caught in their disobedience, and they got called out. It wasn't from the heart, but, but they did what they thought they needed to do. It was like this, this ritual or this, this thing that they just did, right? Like, again, like we just come to church. But no, like, God was after their heart. Jesus is after their hearts. And so how can a healthy spiritual influence, and what does that look like for, from generation to generation? What can we learn from today's text? Well, we see three uh, stages in today's text. Okay, so the first one is this. We get this flashback. Two, we get a critical moment. And three... A flash forward. Flashback, critical moment, flash forward. So the first one is flashback. And so look at verses 6 through 7. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. 
And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And so what we see here first is in verse 6, it says, when Joshua, when Joshua, this is the flashback moment, right? This is the moment that they're going back, they're remembering Joshua, right? So we have this picture here of what happens. The people are weeping, everybody's crying, things are happening, and then all of a sudden you get this flashback moment. Oh yeah, Joshua. Now remember, the book of Judges, back in chapter 1, begins by looking backwards. Right? It begins by looking backwards and looking there. And ends by looking forwards. Starts backwards, ends looking forwards. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But what do we see as we look backwards in this flashback? Well, we see this man, Joshua was an example of someone who loved God. Was a genuine example of somebody who loved God. This person was for real. Like Joshua, we we talked about it in Joshua chapter 5, had an encounter with God that changed him forever. Right? It was a real encounter with God that transformed him. We looked at the life of Moses. We looked at the life of Joshua. There was a real encounter where everything became crystal clear. Verse 7, it says, the, the people in the time of Joshua served the Lord. Uh, verse 7, they had seen all the great work that the Lord had done. So what we see here is people who are genuine because of this. They saw what God had done. Right? They saw genuineness in God and in, in his work in people's lives. And, and they saw that and they were like, okay, this is real. So that's what they were pointing back to. Say, oh, well, look at what God had done. Michael Wilcock, who's a commentator, says the crucial factor was that there was still in Israel a personal knowledge of the Lord's redeeming work. And people who had directly experienced the rescue from Egypt and the molding of a new nation. So what we're seeing here is this. It's the same thing that this generation looks for today. Do you know, like, with all the statistics that come out for kids who grew up in church, because we have so many that are walking away from the church right now, right? The one point that people have that, are, that grew up in Christian homes, they say that, that they saw a genuine example in their parents of real faith. And that's the ones that, like, really stuck, like, this is how I knew it was real. It's because I saw it in my family. Right? What do we do? Like, many times, and I'm telling you this too, do I always act Christianly? There are so many times, you can ask my kids, like, there are so many times I've had to apologize to them and say, hey, I know, like, dad's a pastor, dad's a Christian, I know, like, Dad got mad today. Dad was upset today. You know, dad struggles too. Sometimes that's the most refreshing thing that you can hear because there's standards that we can make that are unrealistic and unbiblical. I want my kids to see that I really need Jesus. I don't want them to see me that I'm faking to be like Jesus on my own strength and power and expecting them to follow suit. Hold on. Pastor struggles? Yes. Husband, dad struggles? Yes. I'm daily in need of Jesus Christ. And what this generation is looking for is something that's true. See, this is a genuine faith. But next, we see the upcoming generation face this critical moment where they had to make this decision, right? So verses eight through nine. Joshua, the son of Nun, the, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. 
And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance of Timnath, uh, Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountains of Gash. Now, this is a critical moment for the people, but it's also a critical moment for God. It's a critical moment for the people. Like, they got to make this decision, right? What are they going to do? Like, Joshua's gone. The, the, the leaders that, are he, that were here, that followed God, that, that experienced all these things, they're gone now. What are we going to do? It's a critical moment for them. But also, what's God going to do? And so let's start first with the people. Let's look at the people. Joshua dies. The text calls him the servant of the Lord. They buried him. They, they have a decision to make, and the decision is made in chapter 1. So again, this is a flashback, right? We're, take, we're going back here, and if you were here a few weeks ago, we talked about chapter 1. Now, what happens in chapter 1? Well, it says that after the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up against the Canaanites to fight against them, right? So they inquired of the Lord. They came to the Lord. The Hebrew word inquired is they, they came and they asked. They consulted. And what happens is this. When you're on your own, when this is, we say like you got to make your faith your own, right? So maybe you grew up in the church and you're, you're outside of the home. Now you got to make a decision, Mom's not dragging me to church anymore. I'm here. I got to make a decision about what I believe. And this is a good moment. This is where things really get real. And what we see here is the people of Israel have a, a decision to make. Joshua's gone. Elders are gone. Mom and dad aren't here anymore. What are they going to do? I think the right thing to do is inquire of the Lord. That's a good thing to do, you know? And so what happens is we, we do the right thing. They consulted God. God's my consultant now. And so they consult of God. They say, okay, well, what do we do? Tells them what to do. And then they're like, hmm, that's okay, but... We got a spin on it. It's really cool. It's actually more practical than what you just told us, God. We're going to do that one and just kind of see what happens. And they won. Okay, things are getting good here, right? Like there, there, there's this critical moment and we consulted God, but it looks like, uh, you know, we can kind of add our own little pieces in there, our own little things. We can do it our way. And what happens is this spiral downward into sin and disobedience. See, many times instead of coming to God as Lord, we come to him as consultant. And God becomes one of our options, not our only option. And what this leads to is this half-hearted obedience to God that doesn't look anything like the life God has called us to live the people spiraled more and more into disobedience until they're confronted by the angel of the Lord in chapter 2. So we have that. Now the question is, what is the critical moment for God? Well, it's this. What does God do with disobedient people? What does God do with people who don't follow through on everything he asks? It's the whole message of the Old Testament, right? We see people that are broken. We, we, we see as you fast forward, and we're talking about this, but the kings, did everything get better with the kings? No. Okay, well, what's the point here? Like, it's all moving forward, and, and we continue to see, okay, God, what are you going to do with people who don't listen to you? Well, he tells them in chapter 2. Well, actually, first, Joshua 1, 3 through 4, he told them this. He said this. He says, 
I'm going to give you the land. He already told them that before they did any of this stuff, the disobedient stuff. He told them, I was going to give it to you. But, so he holds up his end of the bargain. A second, he reminds them that they uh, must be dependent upon him for everything. Didn't do that. Must have a humble spirit and, and spiritually they, to walk with him. Must be care, careful to obey all the law. And, and so the way that we translate law in, in the Hebrew is actually the way of life. The way of life. I'm asking you to follow the way of life because the other ways you're gonna, it's going to lead to death. We think of the law like, oh, it's a bunch of rules. No, it's actually the way of life. And so the people didn't dis- obey. Judges 1, we find out that they didn't trust God, trusted in themselves. So how does God respond? See, the question throughout is this. Is God faithful to his people when his people aren't faithful to him? And as we look at chapter 2, we see the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal. Why is Gilgal important? Well, Gilgal is the place where God gave him this promise. He says, I'm going to give you the land. I'm going to be there with you. I'm never going to leave you. I've made a covenant with you. Now, covenant, we don't understand covenant in our culture today because we don't really use it much. Do you know what covenant is? A covenant, in comparison to a contract, contract is this. Contract is, hey, as long as you follow through with what I'm expecting of you, then we, ha- we can have a relationship. But when you break that, it's over. We have contract relationships all the time. I have a contract relationship with Costco. <laughs> if I go into the parking lot and I see that I could physically be harmed just by parking there, I told my wife, I'm, we, she took me there this week, I'm like, Honey, I'm parking on the side over here because I can't walk in this place. I feel like I'm about to get run over at any moment. I have a contractual agreement. Like, we're good until we're not, you know? I'll go down the street. I don't care. Contract. Covenant. Unconditional. Unconditional. So when God says, I am making a covenant with you, it is not based on your behavior that he's going to say, you're out. That's different. What is that? That's the message of the gospel. That's the message of Christianity. He's invited you into the family based on his work for you, not on what you can do for him. Does God need anything from me? No. But he's called me into the family and says, hey, do you want to know the way of life? Do you want to know what's true? Do you want to know what's good? Hey, I'm going to show it to you. But it's not going to be based on a a contract. It's based on a covenant. I'll never kick you out. Because if I've invited you in, you're always mine. That's why he says he's his people, right? The question of the Old Testament and all throughout is like, okay, is God going to hold up his end of the bargain? Is he going to hold up his end of the bargain of being a covenant God, a faithful God? What's he going to do? Well, flash forward. Look at verses 10 through 11. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation from them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Now what's happening here? Well, it's a flash forward to the decline in the spiritual death of a generation. But the question is, why? Why? Well, As you flash forward to what they do here, that word no is really important. The word no is really important. See, it's two stages here. The first one is this. The the generation here after uh, Joshua, it says that they knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Now, the word no or knew uh, 
doesn't mean that they didn't know about the Exodus. They didn't know about it. It's not that they didn't know about the Red Sea. It's not that they didn't know the crossing of the Jordan. It's not that they didn't know the the walls of Jericho coming, falling down. They knew it in their brain, but it didn't travel into their heart. See, the, the saving works of God were nice ideas, but they weren't realities for them. They didn't see how they needed God. In other words, they'd forgotten the gospel that they were slaves in Egypt and saved radically out of there and brought into this beautiful promised land that as they looked around, they could see that God is gracious, mighty to save. But simply looked around and just said, oh, glad we're here. And they simply forgot. They forgot. It was just in here, but not in here. Second, as a result of forgetting the good news of the gospel, uh, it said they did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. Now, this is an interesting way of describing evil, right? Like, okay, they just didn't serve God. Like, what's wrong with this? But actually, it's the most heartbreaking thing that you can do because what happens here is this. Instead of serving the God that loved them, the the Lord, they were more interested in creating gods for themselves. They were more interested in saying, no, I, I, I believe this and this and this and this and this is what God says, but yeah, I don't need that. I'm gonna make it up myself. I wanna make up life on my own. And, And that was the definition that God gave of doing evil. Why? Because now, instead of being whole people, they became fragmented people. Do you see that? It's when when we're not under the 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 life and, and, and teaching and lordship of Jesus over our lives, we start to become fragmented all over the place. We're just we don't know who we are. We're lost, right? The Bible talks about being lost. And so that's what happens in our lives is we start getting fragmented all over the place and and we're serving all these little mini lords. Question is, whose fault is it? Right? We start blaming. We'll say, well, man, it was that previous generation. They didn't do good enough of a job. Well, no, it was just that, that generation right there, and they made their own choices. Like, whose fault is it? Is it God's fault? Who, who is it? Well, again, Timothy Keller says, it, it is always impossible to lay blame neatly when one generation falls, uh, fails to pass its faith onto the next one. Did the first generation fail to reach out, or did the second generation just harden their hearts? The answer is usually both. Mistakes made by a Christian generation are often magnified in the next nominal one. Commitment is replaced by complacency and then by compromise. Friends, it is a valid thing to look at the previous generation and say, this is where hurt has been caused. This is where pain's been caused within the church. This is where it's really been messed up. But also, we got to look at ourselves and look in the mirror and say, Lord, what is it in me? What is it in us that doesn't repeat that cycle? Right? We don't want to lay more on the next generation. Like I said, the, the book of Judges fast forwards, right? And so at the very end of Judges, it talks about the kings. The kings are all messed up. And what does it point to in the end? Well, talks, God talks to David. And he tells David, he says, your house will live forever. What do you mean? Well, back when nations were conquered, 
they would take the king, they would kill him, and then they would wipe out their whole family. And the reason is they didn't want one of those family members to come and try and take revenge and take the kingdom back. And so they would just wipe them all out. And there are multiple times within the history of the house of David they should have been wiped out. The Assyrians had them surrounded. Next one happens. Who shows up? Huh, interesting. Talks about him in Judges 2. Angel of the Lord. Angel of the Lord shows up, wipes out a whole army. Oh, wow. You mean the, the same angel of the Lord that was there in Judges 5 that met Joshua? Or J J Joshua 5 that met Joshua? Yeah, that's him right there. So he's there. And then the Babylonians, like we talked about with Daniel, yet we see that God took Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know, we know all the, the, the names there, but takes them to Babylon, says, live here, plant roots here. And what we see later is that there's this belief that the wise men that we see going to seek Jesus were actually taught by the teachings of Daniel that said, hey, you need to look because there's going to be a Messiah that's going to come to save the world. When it comes down to the faithfulness of God, he is faithful every time. When it comes to the faithfulness of you and me, <laughs> we need the grace of God every time. <laughs> every time. And so how can we encourage the next generation? The first one is this. Reflect back on all God has done. I don't want to live my life in a way where I say, hey, look at me. Look at all the things that I've done. I don't want to pass that on to my kids. They already roll their eyes at me when I tell them about different things that I've done. Right? And you probably do the same thing to your parents. Okay, I heard that story before. Like, come on. No, what it is that we pass on to the next generation is not, look at how great I was or look at all the things that I've done. No, look at what God's done. Hey, I want you to love Jesus. I want this to be real for you too. I know I can't do that for my kids, but what I can do is point them to the living Christ and ask him to meet them where they're at. Right? That, that, that's, that's all I can do. But I want to I take that on and say, okay, I'm going to reflect back on all that God has done. Second, see the opportunity we have right now. See the opportunity we have right now. Thomas, uh, Tom Rayner wrote a book called The Autopsy of a Deceased Church. That's a scary book, right? <laughs> oh, Let's do an autopsy, see what happened. So this, he says, the most pervasive and common thread of our autopsies was that the deceased churches lived for a long time with the past as hero. They held on more tightly with uh, each progressive year. They often clung to the things of the past with desperation and fear. And when an internal or external force tried to change the past, they responded with anger and resolution. We will die before we change. Here's the thing. We never change this. This never changes. But Lord, change me that I can love and encourage others. I don't want to live with a xenophobia, a fear of people. And we live in a generation right now after going through COVID and everything that we've been through. Because we think, oh, yeah, yeah, COVID, that happened like 20 years ago, right? No, that happened like three years ago. And it still affects us today. It still does. It affects our relationships. It affects how we think about community. Like, can we just acknowledge, like, yeah, there's a xenophobia, and I need the, the philo xenia of God to fill me, a love for people. Lord, teach me how to be a real friend. Teach me how to be a loving family member. Teach me to be a genuine follower of Jesus who loves those around me. Right, that's, that's, 
See the opportunity we have right now. Let's not hold on to what we think is best because that reached my generation. No. Hey, this isn't about us. This is about what God wants to do. And lastly, prepare the next generation. You know, our mission is to equip you with the gospel for everyday life. That's why we exist. Our mission, equip you with the gospel for everyday life. I don't want this to be just some abstract thing that's out there and not something that's living and active in you and me. I'm just telling you, I need the gospel every single day. I need to know that God is a covenant-keeping God, and he's not going to kick me out. I remember my son, I pick on him, but, you know, when he was little, he was just everywhere into everything, and... uh, he, he, he said to me and, and Laura one time, he was probably like four, three or four. He's like, he did something really naughty, you know, like bad. And he was like, he's like, Mom, Dad, you going to kick me out of the family? No, son, we're not going to kick you out of the family. You're always with us. We love you, you know, and you're always here. We're, we're, we're good. If I understand that as a broken parent, who needs the grace of God every day, how much more is God a good father? How much is the God that we serve saying, I got you, I know, I'm with you, I love you. See, as we think about this, the angel of the Lord came to them in, in Genesis 2 and says, you know, you didn't, you didn't obey my voice. What is this you have done? What is this you have done? What is this you have done? We got to admit what we've done. We've run from God. We've tried to make it on our own. We've tried to create our own path. And when you and I can ask the question, what is it that I have done? Then we can look to what he has done. And what is it that he's done? God has taken the conditions of the law upon himself and said, I'll live the perfect life that you could have never lived. He took the punishment that we deserved because we didn't follow the law all upon himself. And that's what the cross is. And God's love meets us and is resolved at the cross. See, it's only at the cross that his law and his love are perfectly fulfilled. His law and his love come together perfectly fulfilled. And that's what everything is pointing forward to. See, the kings and all these here, they were all pointing forward to the king of kings, the Lord of lords, who would come live that perfect life, die the death we deserved, and raise from the dead. See, the church doesn't move from strength to strength. It moves from death to resurrection, just like our Savior. And so can we look to him today for his resurrection power? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the ways you work. And we just pray that you meet us today where we're at. We need your power and your strength. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from Grace City Church. If you found this helpful, feel free to share it and enjoy more resources at gracecitysd.com. Grace City Church exists to equip people with the gospel for everyday life.